morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And it is my privilege to be able to turn to this book and uh, to speak from it. And I was kind of reflecting a little bit back on when we started, or when I started, um, speaking on this about three years ago uh, in Romans chapter 8. And so this has kind of been my go-to passage if needed when pastor is gone. And one of the challenges with that is that when we come back to it, it's taking what we've remembered or what we've mentioned before and remembering it. And try to bring that truth into our time together to be able to to understand it and then grow in it. And um, that is a challenge. Another challenge is just the reality of this chapter. You know, when when I come to this chapter and all of the amazing truths that are here, it is a challenge to... Uh, be able to come to it and then speak about it and do it and give it what it deserves, what the passage deserves. And I am so far short in doing that. Um, But I'm trusting and I've been praying that as we understand what we can from these truths, from this chapter, that Thor would use it and uh, grow us in him and, and to know him better this morning. Romans chapter 8 is that chapter in which many have said this is one of the most securing, if not the most securing chapter for believers in our Bible. It is really one of those pinnacle chapters that uh, when we come to it and understand in it, the truths that are there are, are just for his people to ground us in him and make us secure in the Lord. And we've got, um, if you just kind of giving an overview of the chapter again, the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 17, those chapters are about the fact that we are secure in Christ in spite of our sin. We are secure in Christ in spite of our sin. That's verses 1 through 17. And then verses 18 through the end of the chapter. So there's two parts to this here. Verse 18 down through verse 39. That's the end of the chapter. We are secure in Christ in spite of our sufferings. In spite of our sufferings. Our security is in Him. And so that is the section in which we are in um, today. We are going to be looking, starting with verse 31. And looking down through verse uh, 35, and uh, I say about, I will say this, about 35, maybe we'll get to that, maybe we'll get a little further. Um, My plan here is to go through some of this this morning and then uh, work through the rest of it this evening or this afternoon in our second message. And so um, those are the verses that we're going to be looking at specifically. But as I said earlier, it's a challenge in trying to kind of jump into this passage. 
And so I'm going to try to pull things together from the passage that I think will help us then really grasp what Paul is then referring to or getting into in those verses, verses 31 and following. And I think one of the the, the key verses for us to look at in understanding this is to go to verse 16 and 17. 16 and 17. Those two verses transition from the first part of the chapter to the second part of the chapter. And as we catch or understand that, Paul's a little bit of his introduction and connection into the second part of the chapter. It's going to help us then um, get that overview of the second part of the chapter. And so verses 16 and 17 say this, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And that phrase at the very end there, where it says that we may also be glorified with him, is part of the key understanding of of seeing then what Paul is referring to in this second half of the chapter. You see, what Paul is going to uh, help us understand is that there is the ultimate goal of God, and we have a part of what that ultimate goal of God is. That comes with this reality that we are fellow heirs of, with Christ, verse 17. And we know this, that God is going to glorify His Son by making Him the firstborn among many brethren. And that phrase you might be familiar with, if you look down in verse 29, that's what he says there in the midst of um, that verse where he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And we've got there this idea, this reality that uh, we are heirs with Christ. And Christ is the firstborn among many brethren. And when Christ, or as Christ is glorified, he is set up as exalted above all, we with him will also be glorified with him. You see, as we step back and just ask this question of ourselves, you know, what is God doing in this world? What are some of the, the big picture things? What is he doing in this world? And I would say the root is that he is ultimately bringing glory to Jesus Christ. That is what God is doing. He's working all things, everything that's going on around us, and you can only see this by faith, but as He's working and moving, all things are being worked out so that Jesus Christ is glorified above all things. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15, and if... uh, you can write this down or jot this down. It's 1 Corinthians 27 and 28. That when Christ 
is made head of all things. And he's working to put all things under his feet. Jesus Christ, after that takes place, after he takes everything and subjects them unto himself, and it's, it says there in 1 Corinthians that he's going to put it all under his feet, like he is the one and stands on everything else. He's exalted. When that happens, Jesus Christ himself will subject himself to the Father and put everything under God the Father's feet. So everything is under Jesus Christ, and then he himself, with everything, goes to God the Father and puts it all under him, so that, what's the final result of all that? So that God the Father is glorified above everything. And there's no other higher point of glory. It is God the Father in all of that. So that's what God is doing through Jesus Christ to glorify Christ and then ultimately to glorify himself. And Paul, in this context, is helping us understand that we have a part in glorifying Jesus Christ. So Paul is now, uh, he's, what we're doing here is we're seeing what it is, our part as his people, that God is doing in us to glorify Jesus Christ. We are being subjected unto Jesus Christ. And as then we are subjected, and he himself, Jesus Christ, will then subject all things to the Father. It's like this, this purpose, of overall arching purpose that God is doing to ultimately glorify himself. And we have a privilege of understanding or growing in what it is to glorify Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says just that, that we are children, we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We have this privilege of being able to be glorified with him, a part of the glory of God and of Jesus Christ. And you can see then there's that connection. So Paul is saying, here's what God is doing. We are heirs, we're fellow heirs with Christ, and we're going to be glorified with him. And how does God accomplish that? Well, he goes through those different verses. And then if you look at verse 30, what does Paul say in the end about his people? He says, and we're going to jump into this as well, it says, and these whom he predestined... He also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Like, if you want to know exactly what God is doing to glorify himself, well, it's through Jesus Christ, and we have a part in that glory. How do we have a part in that glory? It's right here. He's bringing all these things, and the process started from the foundation of the earth, or before the foundation of the earth, through foreknowledge, all the way to the end, where we too are glorified. And as we are glorified in Jesus Christ, it brings glory to God the Father. So you can see why this chapter is such a glorious chapter, or a good chapter, because there's like, 
these amazing truths that we've got to understand and grow in. And so what we want to do, what I'd like to do then is do this. Let's go back, since it's been so long since the last time we looked at this. Let's go back to verse 18 and start there, read down through the end of the chapter. And I'll uh, try to make um, some comments along the way. But try to keep in mind this aspect that Christ is going to glorify the Father. We have a part in glorifying Jesus Christ, and our part in glorifying Jesus Christ is to be glorified ourselves. And so here you see this in verse 18, for he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I'm going to try not to preach everything I've preached before, but let me try to review a little bit. You can see here there's something connected to our glory. What is connected to our glory in this verse? Well, if you look at it, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that you reveal to us. There's something connect, There's a connection between glory, which that sounds really good and something we can look forward to, and suffering. Now, he did mention it back in verse 17. If you look back in verse 17, it says at the end there, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul makes this connection here. There's glory to be had in Jesus Christ, and we are part of that glory. But that glory involves suffering. It involves suffering. And you, there is this reality that if we are going to be glorified, we must first suffer. Now, do we have any examples of that in Scripture? Well, of course we do. We've got the Lord himself. And that's what Paul points to. He says Christ suffered and was glorified. We will suffer and be glorified. And we're following in the footsteps of our Savior. For for that's why Paul says this. And there is this encouragement and this stability of reality to us that as we go through suffering, we have the reality that we will be glorified in him. So Paul then says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We will experience that suffering, but in the end, we will, be, we will have that glory. Now then he gets into this aspect, an explanation of how that happens. Verse 19, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, type of suffering, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Let me just say that simply creation, you see this example in creation. Creation was subjected to 
the curse of sin. Someday that curse will be lifted. And in the end, creation, as it were, will rejoice in seeing, being delivered from that corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Like that, the creation will be rejoicing in us or rejoicing in all that God is doing to glorify his people. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. It's like, here's creation, suffering, groaning, waiting. We too, in that same way, suffering, groaning, waiting. And all of that, what God is going to, what God is doing in all of that is he's building up in us this aspect of hope. Because we need this hope in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our growing, groaning, so that as we look forward, we can see that there is a glory to come. And we wait for it. So while you're suffering, while you are groaning in this life, we wait and we hope for what God is going to do in us. Not only do we have that before us, but in verse 26 through 27, you've got the Spirit doing something to help us as we wait and as we groan. It says this, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So as we experience and walk through this life and as we we know the sufferings of this life, we have this hope that we are waiting for the glory and the Spirit himself is working or interceding on our behalf. And we can be encouraged knowing that even in the midst where we don't even know how to pray about the sufferings we're experiencing, the Spirit Himself knows, and He's praying exactly as, this, as the will of God is. We have that confidence in Him. And not only that, in verse 28 through verse 30, you've got this reality of all that God is doing. And Paul says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We have the assurance that everything that happens in our lives and the confusion and the, the muddleness of it all and the suffering and the groaning of it all, every single instance God is going to use for his good, for our good and his glory, which is his good as well. God is doing this. How is he doing all that? Verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Again, there's that ultimate goal. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's like Paul just keeps piling on one thing after another after another. These amazing truths for us to secure us and to say, you are in the midst of suffering. You are in the midst of all sorts of confusion. Be settled in your mind. Know this. Everything is working together for good, and he's doing it for this end, your glorification. And really, there is no way to fully understand all these terms, right? I mean, you look at, you know, foreknowledge, predestination, even justification, glorification. We don't even know what all those terms mean. But Paul just puts them all right there, and he says, you are safe. It's like we are in his hand. We do not need to worry. We can be settled and know that he is good. Well, that now, that's all introduction. Now we get into our text, and that is verse 31. And I'm going to read down through verse 35. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep for the, uh, to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We're going to stop there. What is the most predominant thing that you saw through this past, these verses? Well, as you were reading through that, you probably saw <clears throat> that you've got these question marks all through here. And in fact, if you were to count them up, there are seven Seven questions that Paul gives to us. And when we look at question, these questions, we can kind of think to ourselves, well, what is the purpose of these questions? And we could say that in general. What are the purpose of questions? Well, questions sometimes help us get information. We simply need help in some fashion. And we need uh, help to function in this life, so we ask questions. And those questions can help us in that way. Sometimes questions can clarify understanding. Uh, questions then, if you work through these diff- through different questions, they help you make decisions through various things. Sometimes questions, though, can lead to uncertainty. Sometimes questions can cloud understanding or even cause doubt. 
But what are the purpose of these questions as we're seeing here in these verses? The purpose of these questions is not to do any of those things and a hundred other things besides what questions can do. The purpose of what these questions found in these verses are questions, they are designed to settle our minds and give us a rock-solid security in the midst of our difficulties and adversities. That is what Paul is doing with these questions. Because as you answer these questions, you realize the reality of the truth of what Paul has been getting at here. And the very first question, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through these questions and look at them and examine what they're talking about and uh, come away learning here what Paul has for us. So the first question is in verse 31. Here's the first question. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? And that's really somewhat of an introductory question to the rest of the questions. And we've got in this reality that when he asks that question, what does it force us or what does it cause us to do? Well, when he says, what shall we say to these things, you go back to the reality of what he has been talking about. And most of the commentaries would say that what Paul is referring to there is at least everything that he said in chapter 8. If uh, some would even go far as to say it goes back to chapter 5. And I read one where it says it goes all the way back to chapter 1. Like you could just take everything that Paul has said in the book of Romans up to this point and say, what? It's like every once in a while, Paul will just, he'll just kind of step back and say, what shall we say to these things? Just try to get the big picture and in your mind run through all of these various things that Paul has been giving the truth as it is stated in uh, at least chapter 8. And we would say, if we were to go back in this chapter, we already did go back through some of it, But if you go back through the first chapter, and you can uh, perhaps go back to the first part and just kind of follow along as I mention these various things in this chapter, the truths that are there. The first one in chapter 8 was that there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, he says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And actually what he's saying in that verse harkens back to what he said earlier, basically in chapter 6 through 7. And then you've got verse 3, God did what the law could not do. Verse 4, and there is no condemnation, since there is no condemnation, we can see that in our lives, and we know his work because, verse 4, we walk according to the Spirit. Verse 5, our minds are set on the Spirit. Verse 9, we are in the Spirit. In other words, we have His Spirit, and therefore we belong to Him. Verse 11, our mortal bodies will rise again. Verse 13, we're putting to death the deeds of the body. Verse 14, we are sons of God. Verse 15, we've received an adoption of 
a spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And then again, we get into verses 16 and 17. What we just referred to is that we are heirs with Christ. And as we suffer with Christ, we will be glorified with Christ. And uh, then the other truths there in verses 18 through 25, we looked at the futility and suffering of creation. And we're waiting hope. We're eagerly waiting for it. We're hope in that. Verses 26 to 27, the Spirit himself prays for us. And then verses 28 through 30, you've got this reality that God is working all things together for good. And in the end, verse 30, you've got these truths. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And verse 30, and these whom he predestinated, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he glorified. And I went through that again, those five truths or those five terms there that he gives in verses 29 and 30. That's, we, we refer to that as that golden chain from eternity past all the way to the eternity future. And when Paul then says, what shall we say to these things? What do we say? It's, it's like we're just overwhelmed and we stand in awe of all that God has done and all that he is. And we just marvel. What shall we say to these things? <clears throat> And it kind of sets up, that then sets up the next question. What God is doing in us to glorify His Son is going to make us glorious. And the glory for us is in the future and right now. And this is a mysterious, beautiful, complicated, and amazing way working to make what is going to happen. And it is guaranteed that all of this will take place because God is the one doing it. And Paul just told us how that's all going to happen. So here's the next question. Question number two, and that's in verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? If God is the one doing this, and he has established all his ways, and he's working. Who can be against us? Well, let's start off. Let's talk about that first word there, if. <clears throat> you might say, well, that's a conditional um, word, if. But here in this verse... It's, it's not saying if, as if there's any uncertainty with it. Really, this word, you could put this right above this in your Bible. You could put it there, since God is for us. There is no question that God is for us. When you look back at all these things, which Paul just directed our minds to do, you know, uh, what then shall we say to all these things? You think back to those things. If God, it's really since God is for us, who can be against us? 
We're talking about the creator of the world, right? We're talking about he who spoke everything into existence. And the one who did all that, and his words created all things, that is who we're talking about. Who then can be against him? You know, this reminded me of the passage in Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, you've got a lot of questions there as well. And the questions there in Isaiah 40, direct your minds, and those questions just, like, expand your understanding, and they just expand it and expand it and expand it and expand it. Listen to these verses. I'm, I'm looking at verses 12 through 15 of Isaiah 40. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked the heavens by a span? It's like if you want to talk about the creator of all things and you look at all of space and all that he has done, you know what he does? He just he takes all the waters of the earth and he can just kind of measure it right there in his palm. Or he marked off the heavens with a span. You know, a span was, what is it, 18 inches or so? <clears throat> and it's like he just, you know, takes his, his 18, his 18 inch ruler and just... And he can just mark it off with it. Where, you know, we're talking like hundreds of thousands of light years across that creation, that for us in comparison. And he has calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. He's weighed out the, mal- uh, the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. He can take all of the mountains of the earth and just put them in his scale if he wants. And who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. All those things are nothing to him. And the question is then, who is against us. If the God of creation, who created all things in this manner, and can do all of that, what is the answer to this question? Who is against us? And the answer is this. Absolutely no one. No one. It's almost like, let them even dare to lift up their head against the God of heaven. What would he do to them? And this is the reality. No one can successfully war against us. That is, uh, since God is for us. No government, no lawsuit, no relative, enemy, persecutor, or even false religion. None of those things can successfully wage war against us. Because God is for us. No one can be against us. That is the second question. Let's go on to question number three. And this one involves more to it. There's it's verse 32. And it starts off by setting up the question and then the question given. So it's like the setup is actually part of the question. And we'll talk about the setup and then the question itself. But here it is, verse 32. He 
who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Now here's the question. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? When we consider and stop about God and what he is doing and what he has done, Paul just elevates this for us in our minds. And here's the setup. Paul sets this up, right? That first part of of the question where it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And first of all, we've got to understand that God gave his son. When we consider our relationship to God and what he has given, what has he given? Well, he has given his son. And the way it's worded here, it says, it's like this. It's even his son or precisely his son that he sacrificed. And we could simply, we go to a very familiar verse for this, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son. It is his own son. No son of Adam was chosen, right? You've got Adam and then Everyone else that came after Adam? No son of Adam was chosen out of everybody that lived. Instead, God chose his own son. None of Adam was selected. And not only that, he gave his son. What did he do? Well, God delivered his own son over to be what? We'll say this, to be slaughtered. That's what he did. He gave his own son over to be slaughtered. That word delivered. That is God giving his son. And in what way did he deliver? Well, he delivered his son by giving him into the hands of wicked men who tortured the son of God. He delivered him in that way. In fact, um, you've got this emphasized through the life of Christ and even after. If you look in Mark, uh, in Mark 10, verses 33 to 34, Jesus there is speaking. So, and Jesus, you know, he knew what was coming as they were going to Jerusalem. And it says there <clears throat> in Mark 10, he says, Uh, It says, saying, this is Jesus, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And you've got this reality here of Jesus himself recognizing that he was going to be delivered. In Acts chapter 2, you get a little more of the story of this deliverance, or the being delivered unto. 
<clears throat> and you've got in Acts chapter 2 where um, we read where it says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now here's verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Then Peter goes on to say, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But who predetermined and foreknew the whole thing? It was God himself. God delivered him over. When, when, so God here, so here's Paul, he's saying, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over. That was God delivering Jesus Christ over. And he did it <clears throat> to be slaughtered. Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death. The Father crushed his son and he delivered him over for that. And here's what Paul says, right? This all happened for us all. All. On the one hand, you have Jesus Christ, and on the other hand, you have us all. And He is the one sacrifice that is sufficient for us all, the one for the many. All for us all. He was delivered for us all. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He did this for us all. So here's the question now. That's the setup. You've got Christ. You have the Father. And the Father taking Christ, delivering him over to be crushed and crucified. Why? For us all. All right. Now here's the question. How will he, that is the Father, not also with him, Jesus Christ, freely give us all things? What he's doing is he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. What greater gift? What greater thing could God do than to give his own son? Is there anything greater than that? There's absolutely nothing greater for that. Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. If A is true, then B must be true. A is the supreme thing, that is, God gave his son, and B is the lesser thing. God will give all things. So it's like... <clears throat> It's like we've got all this reality before us that he is going to give us all things. Here's an illustration. All right, let's say um, you are chosen to receive a gift. And let's say that gift is a pontoon boat. I always kind of like pontoon boats. Let's say your gift is a pontoon boat. A pontoon boat is, is designed for relaxing. Um, you go on the water, right? You lake. 
or something. And it's not made for rough waters, but you know, just on the top of the water there. It's for fishing, swimming, grilling, sitting, reading, just hanging out with friends. It's like having a huge backyard deck floating on the water. And uh, they say, I've got this little thing, it's the ultimate experience for family fun. Okay. So you've got this, this aspect of this pontoon boat. And let's say uh, you get more specific and there's this, you're going to get this double-decker 310 Escalante luxury pontoon boat. All right, about $150,000. This boat has two engines, you know, 450 horsepower. It's got couches, it's got a refrigerator, it's even got a grill. Um, there's a water slide from the second level that goes down into the water. And you can go up there and you do all this. And uh, let's say you've got uh, someone in your family, you know, or somebody that you know loves you and he wants to get this for you. And they just are, they, you know, obviously they have a lot of money, right? And so they get this and they purchase it and they give it for you and it's out there and you've got it on the lake. <clears throat> and, you know, you're, you're about to go out there. Everything is ready, right? Even the, the, the propane tank is even full for your grilling. And, you know, you've got all the stuff. There's the life preservers and everything else. You're kind of going through your checklist of everything you need. And you're going along and you realize, oh, you know what? We're missing the anchor. You look around, look at the manual, anchor should be there, it's not there. Overlooked by somebody along the way. And, you know, it's, anchor's pretty important as you get out into the lake. You want to be able to stay and not float around and stuff. So, you know, you, you need an anchor. And you go back to the person and say to them, I, you know, we've got this big, huge, this boat that you've given us, it's wonderful and everything, but we're missing the anchor. What do you think that they will provide that anchor for you. Well, they provided everything else for you. There, of course, they're going to go and say, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, something happened, must have been a manufacturer's mistake, whatever. We'll, we'll get you, uh, um, we'll, get, we'll get an anchor for you. And, and they're going to do it right away so that you can enjoy this gift that you've gotten. This is, it's like, it's like God has given us His Son. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? He has given the greatest thing to us. Everything else is going to come. He's going to provide all these things. And here's the reality, or here's the question then, is what are the all things. What are the all things? Because that's what <clears throat> Paul is saying here for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Well, you've got this phrase, all things, mentioned back in verse 28, and you also have it mentioned in verse 37. And this, in verse 20, 28, he says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Since God works all things together for good, everything given to them, to those people, everything given to us, turns out to be a gift for their benefit. 
This doesn't mean the circumstances aren't painful <clears throat> and that they and they will include suffering. Um, but it means that we can expect everything given, every circumstance to be used by God for the benefit of every believer. So, so when we read that in verse 28, everything that's happening there turns out to be a benefit for the believer. In fact, if you go over to verse 37, look at that. It says there, um, <clears throat> but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And these things are described. They are the things of which we're talking about tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness, peril and sword, all those things. Paul says we overwhelmingly conquer. And in order to be more than a conqueror over affliction and distress and these persecutions, it means that these enemies are actually turned to the good of believers through the power of God. God is so powerful and he is working in such a way that all these things that we overwhelmingly conquer, that means there's a benefit for us as his people. And he's turning those things so that they are for the good. There is a suffering in the midst of the difficulties and trials, but the love of Christ is so powerful that it turns our greatest enemies into our friends. All these things are used by God for the benefit of believers. <clears throat> and to reiterate that, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. You've got a very, the wording here is very close to what he's mentioned here in Romans. And it says there, <clears throat> verse 21, So let, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. And what you've got here is that, you know, the Corinthians were not supposed to boast in any person, because all things are yours. And in this context, the all things includes people. You've got Paul, Apollos, and Peter. But it also has things like this. Life and death. Things right now and things to come. And so the question you know, is, how can all these things, including death, be for the benefit of believers? Well, these things are beneficial because... We belong to Christ. And by virtue of our union in Christ, we not only endure death, but death is for us. And everything leading up to that death. All the sufferings 
all the sorrows and even death are turned to our good. How? It's turned to our good by the love of Jesus Christ. God in his love will turn all things for the good of his people. Again, the love of God is so powerful that all things are for the benefit of believers. And when we go back to Romans chapter 8, how is he going to give this to us? Well, he's going to give it to us in this way. How will he not also with him freely, freely give us all things? It's like the grace of God just abounds to his people. And when he bounds to his people, those things given to us, all of that suffering and all the trials and difficulties of this life, God is working in them and changing or working to um, use them in us to bring about hope, to bring about the reality that in the end, he's going to glorify us with Jesus Christ so that we can step back and say, It doesn't matter what happens to us. God is the one working. He, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he, God, not also with him, Jesus, freely give us all things? Not only do we know that God is working all things together for good, we own them. They are ours for our good. We can look at anything that comes into our life and have the greatest confidence and security that that event, circumstance, need, sorrow, conflict, trouble, suffering, or anything else that comes is for our benefit. Not only are we referring to everything that happens now, but we're also including those things that are going to happen in the future. All things includes even the glory that is to come. So what we have to do is we've got to look back and say to this, you know, Paul is doing all of these things for his, uh, that, that, God is doing all these things for his glory, that Jesus Christ will be glorified. And as Christ is glorified, we too will be glorified in him. And so so he's going to make sure that happens. Everything along the way is ours. It is ours. And the glory that is to come. How do we know all this? Well, as he said then in that verse, We know this because God gave his son for us. If he gave us his son, he is going to give us everything else. He is going to give it freely, graciously to us in all these things. We can sit back and say, this is the power and work of God. And he is good. So what is, <clears throat> what is going on in your life? 
What, what difficulties? What trials? What sorrows? What groaning is going on in your life right now? But we have the confidence that whatever it is, we know that God is taking those things and working in us for His glory. What does that do for us? It gives us confidence. It gives us a security in Him. And we can look at all those things and trust that He is doing these things and anticipate His work in us. And that is, a, that is something that we grow in. And here in Romans chapter 8, we've got from God these securities, and specifically in these questions that God is doing in us to secure us in Him. Well, this afternoon we will go on <clears throat> and look at these other questions. But let's pray that the Lord would use this in our own hearts and minds and secure us in Him. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for all that you have given to us. And that is all things. That all these things are given to us as your people, that you might work in us a glory that comes and that we can anticipate and hope in the end that you will do all this for your own glory, for Christ's glory, and our glory. Lord, we thank you, and I pray, Father, that each one of us, as we face the specific trials of this life, that you will work in us and give us that that vision, that understanding to walk in your ways and to be secure in you. Lord, we do thank you again for these things, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.